0: It's good to have all of you with us today. Uh, we are going to continue our sermon series this morning on Forgive. And uh, if you haven't read the book, there's still time. There's always time, right? Um, we are on, uh, we're nearing the end of the sermon series, but this is such a fabulous book that we're following along with uh, that I, I thoroughly recommend reading the whole thing and uh, getting a little bit more out of it than you maybe get on Sunday morning. But today we are continuing and we're on receiving God's forgiveness. That's the chapter that we're on. But before we do that, let me bring us back uh, through a little bit of review, okay? You know, when you sat in school, they always said, okay, let's start off with a little bit of review. Those of the teachers are giving me thumbs up, maybe? Yeah, okay. Anyways, so we start off with uh, learning all about forgiveness. And we talked a lot about how our culture just doesn't sort of understand forgiveness like it used to. Like, uh, some are even questioning if forgiveness is a good thing, or forgiveness even works anymore for our culture, and should we even continually forgive people, because it's been abused. And I think what happens here is our culture is slowly drifting away from our Christian anchor. And we see that every day, that more and more people are saying that I'm not a Christian, and so as we sort of lose those underpinnings, uh, forgiveness gets a little twisted. And what it means gets a little twisted. So some people are just upset that you're giving away forgiveness, but they don't realize that there's an anchor, there's responsibility with that, right? And then some people are so mad that you're giving it away that they said we shouldn't give it away at all, and we shouldn't uh, forgive people. And what that leads to is mob rule, and that leads to uh, anger and wrath, and so both sides of this coin are wrong. And so we talked about forgiveness and justice being paired. That in God, there is both justice and forgiveness. And we're going to talk about that some more. And last week, Becky talked about fig leaves. If you remember, this was the metaphor that she used to explain sin. In the original sin, in Adam and Eve, in the story in the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the fruit of this certain tree. God says, that's the only rule. And so they do. And they sin. And immediately afterwards, they feel naked. They feel like, oh my gosh, I've done something wrong. And they feel exposed. And their first instinct is to cover themselves up. Their first instinct is to try and cover up their sin. They feel like they're exposed, like something is desperately wrong. And so they use fig leaves, the first thing that they can find, to cover themselves up. And we do this all the time. We cover ourselves up with work. We cover ourselves up with all sorts of things to try and deflect away from our own sinfulness. And that's the fig leaves. But the point is, is that even if you declare, like, I don't believe in Christianity and forgiveness anymore, you're going to come to a point in your life where you would find that there's just something wrong. That maybe you say, I don't know if I believe this Jesus thing, but deep down inside you, you know that something's not quite right. That there's still something off with the world, and there's still something off with me. And as much as we try and say, you know, sin doesn't matter anymore, and everybody can just be what they want to be, and that's fine, we know that that's not true. Deep down inside ourselves, we find a nagging that something is just not right. Maybe it's something that you've done and you just can't sort of shed the feelings of guilt and shame from that. And if you look on Amazon for guilt and shame in the self-help book section, you will find tons of books that are trying to help people rid themselves of that guilt, rid themselves of that shame that they have, that deep down nagging sense that they're naked, that they can't get rid of. But there's only one thing that can help you get rid of that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That is the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And the book Timothy Keller says there there are uh, these are the things necessary to help you receive forgiveness. It's a nice three-two-one here. We've got three things to stop doing, two things that we should start doing, and one thing to receive. Now, you can keep track as we go along, but you're going to need more than one hand. Just warning you, okay? You shouldn't need any toes, though, so I don't want to see any shoes off. So let's start off with the first thing that we should stop doing in order to receive God's forgiveness. That is blame shifting. That is trying to push your blame onto someone else, right? That is trying to prevent yourself from saying, you know what? It's not really my fault. Like, Mark, you did this. No, it's not really my fault. Uh, I was forced to do this. Or, you know, I had a rough upbringing. If you'd met my parents, you know why I do this, right? Seriously, if you've met my parents, you should understand me a little bit more. I had no choice. Or, even better, if you know me very well, have you seen my brothers? Like, maybe you know why I'm the way I am, right? But that's all shifting blame. No, I was just hanging out with a bad influence, that's all trying to put the blame on someone else and not accept it ourselves. We're not accepting our own responsibility for that. We're trying to shift the blame. And if you look online and you do any research, this is kind of a popular topic uh, in, in uh, the internet circles right now about blame shifting. And most of the, the explanations I found on it talk about, hey, you should avoid those blame shifters, right? Look out for them. They're bad. You don't want to be in a relationship with them. You don't want to hang around. You don't want to have friends that are blame shifters. But the point that they're missing is that we're all capable of this. We all do this to some extent. We all try and shift the blame. Nobody wants to admit that I was wrong. And so that's the first thing that we have to stop doing and even in Scripture, we find this. This is not a new concept, folks. This is Genesis, the first chapter in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, you remember, they sinned, they ate that tree, and so God uh, comes to them and says, hey, you've eaten of, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What's Adam's response? The woman, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. You can hear him, right? The desperate sound in his voice. And so God says to the woman, all right, what do you say for yourself? The serpent. The serpent was the one that made me do it. Blame shifting is as old as time. And we all try and get away from those responsibilities. Now, the second thing we should stop doing is self-pity. You know, this is bending inward when a sin happens. Instead of dealing with a sin, we bend inward. Oh, man, I really made a mess of things. Are you going to come today? No, I can't show my face. You know, I wish I hadn't done that. There's no way back for me. This is just focusing so much on yourself and bent so inward that it's a sin in itself. Instead of admitting what you've done wrong and dealing with the concepts, we just focus on the consequences, and we dread the consequences. You know, it used to say, uh, uh, my dad is going to be so upset when he gets home. So do you feel bad about the sin? Or do you feel bad about the consequences? Oh, I've got it coming for me now. I'm going to be grounded for life. Or even as an adult, man, I, I don't want to do prison time. I, I, you know, I don't want to be caught in this. See, this is not feeling bad for the sin, but this is feeling bad for getting caught. It's not relational. It's bent in on yourself. It's self-absorbed. Now, the third thing that we should stop doing is self-flagellation. And this is beating yourself up, you know? This is just being so hard on yourself. I, I wish I hadn't done it. Oh man, I'm, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did that. No one will ever accept me again. But what is this doing? This is an attempt to get out of it by looking bad, by attempting that maybe somebody will let you off the hook, give you a pardon maybe. Oh man, Look at how hard he is on himself. I'm not going to punish him. This is self-absorbed as well. This is an attempt to deflect it by looking like you feel so terrible for what you've done. These are the three things that are against repentance. Because none of them own up to what you've done and none of them attempt to make it better by establishing that relationship again. That's the three things that you can't do in order to repent. The two things that you need to do are confess. Take responsibility. I did that. It's my fault. I know it hurt you, and I'm sorry. I take ownership of that. I did that. It's my fault. That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? It's much easier to do those other things. Ah, sorry, I didn't mean to. It's much more difficult to come to someone And say, I did that. Now, as DJ read from Psalm 51, David had been caught in this sin, right? David had anything he wanted except a forbidden fruit. Just like Adam and Eve, they could have everything in the garden except this one thing. David had wisdom, riches. He had everything that he wanted except for her this forbidden fruit. And so, when he's confronted confronted by that, he comes forward and he writes this beautiful psalm. For I know my transgressions, I know my sins, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, this is important to point out that he sinned against a lot of different people, but he recognizes that his primary sin was against God. I've failed, Lord. I've hurt all of these people. But you put me in this place. You made me king over Israel, and I have let you down. I was selfish. We need to admit that we're wrong. But more importantly, we need to admit that God is God. And he knows what's better for us. And we're subject to his rule. And David does this, against you have I sinned, Heavenly Father. Once we've confessed, the second thing that we need to do is forsake that sin. And what does that mean? It means turning away from it. It's relational. Lord, I just don't hate the, the th- getting caught by the sin, but I hate the sin itself. Because I know it affects our relationship. It's surrendering to God's rule in your life. He knows what's better for me. It's following his rules even though I might not want to because I want that relationship restored. So I turn away from my sin. Now, I've been around long enough on this earth to know that you can't just magically turn away from a sin and you can't just say, that's it, I'm done, no more sinning. Tomorrow, it's a fresh new day. But as we turn to God and as we trust in God, He will slowly change us. As we continue to confess to God, as we continue to forsake our sin, He will change us just by relying upon Him, turning away from our sin. But the last thing is something to receive. And this one is the toughest one. And this one is the hardest one that you're going to struggle with. And this is actually to receive God's forgiveness to actually understand that you are forgiven and that it is written no more in God's book. We hear it on a Sunday, don't we? You're forgiven. I've confessed my sins. I'm forgiven. But then do we actually let it go? Do we actually release it? Do we actually say, no, it is no more. God has forgiven me. Sure, there's consequences that we have to deal with with sins, but have we truly lived our life recognizing that we are free from these sins. Do we really understand that? Do we really live like God has forgiven us? Most of the time, we go back to living just like we were before. You know, thinking, well, I've cleared my slate for the next week, and I'll have to come back and do it again. But it's life-changing to understand what God has done. It was for David. Continuing on in Psalm 51, he says, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Hallelujah! You have forgiven my sins, Lord. Thank you for that. I'm overwhelmed by what you have done. I can't imagine not having to worry about them anymore, and now I I have that gift from you, Lord. You have forgiven them. Is that how we respond? Typically not. Why is that? I don't think we understand how big a deal this is. But this is core to our Christian faith. And it's right here. There's a clue to it right here in Psalm 51. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. And what we don't realize is that it's it's, it's all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every once in a while you hear, you know, you Christians, you just like to talk about blood. What's the deal with that? Isn't there a way to teach Jesus without talking about blood? That's so old-fashioned. But this is the key to understanding Scripture. Leviticus says that for the life of the flesh is in the blood. If you take an animal and you drain the blood, will it continue to live? Blood gives life. And it starts right here in Genesis. Back to Adam and Eve. Right after they had sinned, the Lord said, you will surely die. And he kicks them out of the garden. But he offers them some grace. The first time some sins are covered by God. For the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Some animal sacrificed, shed its own blood so that Adam and Eve could continue on, so that Adam and Eve's nakedness, so that their sins would be covered. Blood was shed. And this is the key part of the Old Testament. We jump ahead to the Exodus story, right? And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to reiterate it because it's so important. The Exodus, Moses is trying to free the Israelites from Pharaoh, and on the final plague, when Moses won't let the or when Pharaoh won't let them go, God says, I will send my angel of death to judge them. And so what they're supposed to do is take a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat. They're supposed to cover the door with the blood of the lamb. And then the angel of death will pass over. The punishment that is due for them will pass over them because of the blood. Because of the blood of the lamb. He says this, that that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on them. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses, and I will pass over that. And no destructive plague will touch you. When I strike Egypt, the blood protected them. It gave them life. It forgave the sins that were due to them. They had punishment coming, but the blood cleared their sins. And this continues on through the Old Testament. We find the sacrificial system where they would take an animal and they would shed its blood on the altar for the sins of the people. Now, you're thinking, okay, that's old-fashioned. People don't do that anymore, right? But what it was doing, and they realized it at the time as well, that how can this animal surely cover all of my sins? That's why they kept doing it. But it was a foretaste. It was foreshadowing of what's coming next. And if you remember, when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the Lamb that's blood will be for the people, has now appeared. And Jesus makes this connection so crystal clear, right out of his mouth. They're sitting having the last supper. And he says to them, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks for them, he said, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm pouring out my blood for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus submits to the Roman authority, dies on the cross, sheds his blood for all mankind. Now, if he were just a man, it really wouldn't matter all that much. But he's fully God and fully human. And so somehow in that mystery, God has himself shed his own blood for you, for me. Why would he do that? Why would the God of the universe that created everything resort to shedding blood for all of us? We just have to realize how important and how um how our sins are so repugnant to God. He is a God of justice, and our sins cannot go unpunished. But he's also a God of love and he loves us so much that he made a way. So he himself took the punishment that was due for us. He himself died upon the cross, shed his own blood, so that you and I can be forgiven. Stop to think about that for a moment. I mean, if it's really true that the God who created everything, the God who sustains all of life, cares for you so much, dislikes your sin so much, but cares for you so much, that he would die on that cross? What kind of a God is that? A God that wants a relationship with you so much that he would go to such lengths to make that happen. Why can we not receive that forgiveness? Why do we have troubles recognizing the amazing gift that, it, that is? If we truly grasp that, that can change our lives. That new relationship that we have with that God, that God that wants us to be in relationship so much, can change you, can free you, can make you say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. We have to recognize that we are sinners, that we need this. We have to confess, Lord, I can't do it by myself. But I want relationship with you. So thank you for what you have done. Now, I want you to take a moment um, to just think about this. I want you to sort of close your eyes, um, bow your head if you'd like to. I'm going to invite the band up because they're going to sing here in just a moment. I would like you to take just a moment and think about the, the sin that you are holding on to. The sin that has been lingering so long that you hardly even remember it's there. But the sin that prevents you from receiving that forgiveness, from living in the joy that God has created for us. Just take a moment and focus in on that. I bet you know what it is. It may have been there so long that it's hard to recognize. Now, I want you to understand that God, too, hates that sin. We weren't created to be this way. And that sin is a failing But God has made a way. God has provided a way. He's died for you. He's taken that sin upon himself and he grants you forgiveness. That sin no longer has power over you. Jesus has taken it from you. You are now freed to rejoice in the Savior that we have You are now free to totally say, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, but you have forgiven me, and I will go and live in that joy. Atonement family, you do have a God who loves you so much. A God that died for you. A God that shed his blood on that cross. A God who has forgiven you your sins. And now we need to receive that. We need to celebrate what He has done for us. These things we are grateful for. Jesus, we are thankful for what you have done. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching this video today. I hope it's been a blessing for you. We at Atonement are a community about loving God and loving people. And we'd love for you to know more about the God who loves you so much. Check out our other videos on YouTube or find us on your favorite podcast player with Atonement Fargo. Thanks for joining us.